0: Um, I'd like to open up tonight a little bit differently than I normally do with two quotes from two authors. We're going to get to the scriptures I've got on the screen momentarily. Sometimes when we study the Bible and we study it to know what Yahweh's Word would have us to believe and what it actually teaches, says, and means, we have to do some adjusting on what we think Or maybe what we believed in the past. Has anybody ever thought something or thought that the Bible taught something and then you got around to studying what the Bible had to say about that and you said, oh, I've got to make some adjustments. I've got to turn some things around. And a lot of times when you find one thing that you may have saw wrongly, it affects so many other things. I don't want you to be afraid of that. I don't want you to be scared of that because there's not a man on the earth that has... All the truth on every biblical subject. We learn and we grow as Yahweh leads and guides us, just like a little seed that's planted in the garden and doesn't grow up overnight, but it takes time, and then eventually it produces fruit. So I ran across a couple of, of quotations in this book that I had. Re- I've read it. Um, I'm going back through some of it and studying some of it now, but I've read it in its entirety last year. And it's a it's a commentary on Matthew chapter 24. It's by an old Baptist preacher. And I'm going to read, it's a little bit lengthy but not too much, but I'm going to read something he says right here at the end of his book where he gives his personal testimony about studying matters of eschatology. Eschatology is, sounds like a fancy word, but it just means the study of last things eschaton is the Greek word for last things or last days. So ology comes from the word logos, study, wisdom word, study of last things. So he says right here in his personal testimony, listen to this. I'm going to read this and then another author. He says, please understand me when I say that this book or any of my books does not summarize the last word on what I feel the Bible teaches. I would hate to think I should never learn anything else new nor anything different than I now understand to be true. Especially from 1980 to now, I have increasingly studied matters of eschatology and have been led step by step to see many new truths to me as I have so studied. I have continued to write what I have learned, even though some things differed from what I had previously understood and wrote. There are some things which, when seen and understood, will never allow one to go back to what he once believed. But my learning has been progressive. As a result, so have been my writings. You can read any of my earlier writings as I was separating more and more from the modern pre-tribulation rapture teaching, millennialism, and futurism, and see this progression. To be sure, if I live and God lets me keep writing, there will yet be further developments of these truths to me and some discarding of points here and there where improvement needs to be made. Some of what was previously published in our smaller books on Matthew 24 had to be revised before being published in this larger book, Not Much Though. Then he says, So don't fuss at me too much for what I believe and teach today. Tomorrow there may be some improvement. I do not discount the possibility of my being wrong on what I believe today. I do not believe I have all the truth. What I am saying here is that I am not closing my mind to any new understanding of truth which God lets develop in my mind. But what I have learned may throw some light for you on these matters if you are seriously interested in studying what the Bible says. James Russell Lowell said, The foolish and the dead alone never change their opinions. End of quote from Baptist minister John L. Bray. I thought that was so good and something we need to be reminded of that none of us have arrived at ultimate understanding and we have to constantly refine and tweak and gain more knowledge on things as we grow Um, that's why it's so important I, i get upset when i hear preachers not preach the bible because there's so much here to preach and we need to be studying the bible instead of you know how to make every day a Friday, or so on and so forth. So here is another quotation from another author. Some of you guys might know. His name's Arnold Bowen. My father in law, an elder in the faith to me. And he wrote this. I can't remember what version of the lunar Sabbath book we initially put this in, but this was at the beginning of it, in the foreword of the book. Elder Arnold Bowen, he wrote this, quote, We certainly know that this does not begin to answer all questions pertaining to this very important subject, so we reserve the right to add to or change as the eyes of our understanding are opened further by the Heavenly Father, Yahweh. And if we have to make any changes to correct, we will do so as He leads us, as all honest truth seekers should do. When we become perfect, we will not have to change anymore. We will be perfect as He is perfect. And he changes not, end of quote. Another good quotation by another author and elder that we have here at our assembly. So we must keep studying the Bible. I have found in my studies, even this week, some things that I've had to tweak and and maybe that I misunderstood partially and some things misunderstood totally in the past. And I say here again as I stand before you I'm not a perfect man. Um There is no perfect man with perfect understanding here in this life. I try my very best to study the Bible and then to teach it to you as a congregation and to a lot of people across the world that contact me every week. But that doesn't mean that I cannot make mistakes. And so you must do the Bible study yourself. You must. Uh, Yahweh is very adamantly against teachers that teach faults and he comes down on them really hard in the Bible but do not think that that dismisses the listener because if the blind lead the blind, both shall fall into the ditch. And so Yahweh's not going to give you any golden nuggets if you don't put in the effort to dig. And as I love to say, His Word is more precious than gold and silver and it's sweeter than honey in the honeycomb. Amen. So we've got to be digging for the truth of Yahweh's Word. We're going to open up in Matthew 24, verse 3. Matthew 24, verse 3. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now we're going to go to Mark 13, 3 through 4. This is a parallel passage. I'll explain what that means momentarily. Mark thirteen three 3-4, while he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? And we go to another parallel passage in Luke 21, verse 7. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Matthew 24, 3 Mark thirteen three through 4 and Luke 21, verse 7. We opened up now by reading three parallel passages. I use that phrase a lot, parallel passages or parallel text. And what I mean is this. Bible verses where different authors write about the same thing, or sometimes Bible verses where the same author writes about the same thing in different books or in different epistles. Now, in the case at hand, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, three authors are all recording the same account, Yeshua's Olivet Discourse. Remember, it's commonly called the Olivet Discourse because as we see from Matthew 24, verse 3 and Mark 13:3, he gave this prophetic discourse while he was seated on the Mount of Olives. The reason it had that name, Mount of Olives, was because of the many olive trees that grew on that mountain or that hill range. Let me briefly mention that the Mount of Olives is not a mountain like Some may think like Everest or Kilimanjaro or something like that. It's more of a hill that's roughly about 700 feet above the plain, and it's composed of three peaks or three summits on the mountain. In Matthew 24, 1 through 2, Yeshua has exited the temple in Jerusalem, so we know he was in Jerusalem at the temple at that time. However, in Matthew 24, verse 3, our opening text, Yeshua is now sitting on the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is still technically in Jerusalem, but it was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. Mark 13:3 says that the Mount of Olives was across from the Temple complex, and Acts chapter 1 verse 12 shows us that it was less than 1 mile from the city. So you could see it on the Mount of Olives and you could see the city of Jerusalem off in the distance you could see the temple. The only thing separating the Mount of Olives and the city of Jerusalem was a valley called the Kidron Valley in between the two. So evidently, from reading Matthew 24, 1 through 2, and then verse 3, after Yeshua made the pronouncement about the destruction of the temple, he and his disciples left the city and went to sit somewhere on the Mount of Olives. Matthew 24, 3 says that while he was sitting there, his disciples asked him some questions privately. And these questions were prompted by Yeshua's statements. His statement in Matthew 23, verse 38, where he said, Your house is left to you desolate. And his statement in Matthew 24, verse 2, I tell you the truth, I assure you, verily, verily, there shall not be one stone left here upon another that will not be torn down. See, Yeshua had pronounced judgment upon Jerusalem and Judah. Don't forget Luke 19. We covered this last week. Luke 19, 41 through 44, an extremely important passage in all of this. Yeshua weeps. He looks out over the city of Jerusalem and he weeps. And weeps in the Bible is more than just sheds a tear. It's it's a lot of tears, weeping. And the reason he weeps is because he loves the city but he knows the judgment that's coming to the city. And he speaks of a day, he says that the enemies of Jerusalem would build an embankment against it, surround it, and hem them in on every side of the city. And these enemies would bring upon the city utter destruction, and they would not leave one stone left upon another. Luke 19:44. That sounds a lot like Matthew 24, 2. Both of them talk about not one stone left upon another. Judgment would come upon Jerusalem because, Yeshua says in Luke nineteen forty four, because they did not recognize the time of their visitation. See, the son came for a visit. He was sent by the landowner to the tenant farmers, and they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. So judgment had to come down. Now, here's another important tip to use when studying the Bible. Remember last week we talked about how the One Bible study tip is to read through a chapter division because chapter and verse divisions were added later on. talked about that last week. Well, this week I want to explain how it's good to read the Bible not just vertically, up and down, verses before and verses after. I've talked about the 20-20 rule. Anytime you read one verse, read 20 verses before it and 20 verses after it to get some context or else you'll start ripping verses out of context. That happens a lot in our day and time but we don't want to do that. So we follow that 2020 rule to read vertically, but it's also good to read the Bible horizontally. And what I mean by horizontally is parallel passages, like I mentioned at the beginning of the lesson. See Matthew, Mark, Luke and John are four authors that give us their account of the life ministry of Yeshua of Nazareth. And the four authors often record the same accounts in their individual Books, but because they're different men with different personalities and different interests they record the same accounts in their own way which often means that their accounts differ from one another. See when the Holy Spirit used men to write the word of Yahweh He did not robotize them He still used their knowledge and their abilities and their different individual flavors so to speak as they would write Different people write different ways. Now, these accounts differ, but I don't mean that they can't be harmonized. Just because accounts sound like they're different or seem contradictory does not mean that they cannot be harmonized. That's not what I'm saying. Some people read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they're very quick to be critical, to criticize and be negative about the Gospels because they have a mind that's bent on discrediting the Bible. However, Why in the world would we expect Matthew and Mark, two different people who look at things with different sets of eyes, to record an event in the exact same way and use the exact same words? Brother Dennis Hudson and I, we share a lot in common theologically and biblically, but if we both went home tonight and wrote about what took place in the meeting tonight, there are some things that we would both write about, but there are some things that Dennis would write about that Matthew wouldn't. And there are some things that Matthew would write about that Dennis wouldn't. That wouldn't mean Matthew and Dennis's accounts were contradictory, but you could get a larger understanding of what took place in this meeting by reading both of our accounts. The more people you throw into the mix, the more accounts that you get. I would actually be skeptical if they read exactly the same, that is, Matthew and Mark. If they read identically to each other, it would make me skeptical of the truthfulness of their respective books. Now, this next quote I'm going to share will explain what I'm speaking of very well. I want you to listen carefully. This is from a work titled Otto Scott Steers by the Compass, published in 1999 by James P. Lucier, and he recounts something that Otto Scott said that fits well in our lesson today. And Otto Scott at one time was not a believer in Christ, but he was converted to belief in Christ, and this is one of the stories that he talks about. This is from Otto Scott. Quote, Well, my wife was Christian and took our daughter to church all the time. I would attend out of courtesy. One night I was reading late and my little girl came out of the bedroom and wanted to know about this business of turning the other cheek. I had no idea where that idea came from, but I thought it might be in the Bible. Well, I had a Bible in the house, of course, and I picked it up and read the Gospels, all four, in one swoop. Stop right there. Why did you read all four Gospels in one swoop? because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record the account where Yeshua talks about turning the other cheek. So he didn't just read vertically. He read horizontally, parallel passages. That's smart. That's the way we should study the Bible. Continuing on, quote, "...it was the contradictions in the testimony of these four different men that convinced me. As a reporter, I had interviewed a lot of men And I was on the crime beat at one point. I knew that if you get four men who tell you the same story, they probably are colluding because no four men see the same thing the same way. One sees one significant element. One sees another. Although there was a close resemblance in the reporting of certain incidents in the Gospels, they were not identical. I was instantly convinced. I don't think a person could have convinced me, but those varying contemporary histories did. End of that quote from Otto Scott. And I hope that you catch this. Mr. Scott became convinced of the credibility of the gospel authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because their accounts or stories were not identical. That persuaded him. And his point's a great one, because a trained reporter knows that four men who tell the exact same story have already talked to one another and gotten their stories straight before they're interviewed. You know that. If you're on the crime beat and you interview four different men and they say the exact same thing, you kind of look in their eyes and you know these guys have collaborated. They've colluded together. That's why they're all saying the same thing because you know four different people are not going to see everything identically. And so the contradictories or the differences in the gospel authors convinced Otto Scott. The fact that they differ and sometimes seem contradictory lends credence to their testimonies. So back to the Bible study tip. In reading Matthew, Mark, and Luke at the beginning of the sermon, we have three different accounts or perspectives of the same event. John, by the way, Gospel of John, John does not record the Olivet Discourse. Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. And here's a quick example. I'm going to show you an example of how they read differently, yet they harmonize. And when we read these parallel texts, we glean more information than if we just read Matthew or just read Mark or just read Luke. Matthew 24, verse 3 tells us that the disciples approached Yeshua privately. Luke 21, 5-7 just says, some of the men who were talking about the temple's beauty approached Yeshua. However, Mark fills in a detail for us. In Mark 13, verse 3, Mark lets us know that the disciples who approached Him privately on the Mount of Olives were four. Peter, James, John, and Andrew. We get that from reading the Bible horizontally. Parallel passages comparing parallel texts with one another. Were there other disciples there? Maybe. We don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. What we do know for sure is that these four disciples were there. And they are the ones who approached Yeshua privately and asked him questions. And remember, the questions they asked him were prompted by Yeshua's statements about the destruction of the temple. That's what prompted them to ask this threefold question in Matthew 24, verse 3. We read it again. While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples approached him privately and said, Tell us when will these things happen, and what is the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I don't see any reason to separate these questions into multiple events that take place at different times. In other words, number one, when will these things happen? Number two, what is the sign of your coming? And number three, what is the sign of the end of the age? Are all questions about one event. The disciples were marveling at Yeshua's statements about what? The destruction of the temple. Remember they called his attention to the temple. They said, look at these massive stones and this beautiful building. And he says, I tell you the truth, there shall not be one stone left here, when he's standing there, upon another that won't be thrown down. And so therefore the questions come. The statement made the disciples ask him, when is this going to happen? And then the disciples associated the destruction of the temple with the sign of his coming and the end of the age. Now, let's read horizontally. Matthew 24, 3. We go now to Mark thirteen, one through 4. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, "'Teacher, look! What massive stones! What impressive buildings!' Yeshua said to him, "'Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down.'" While he was sitting on the Mount of Olives across from the temple complex, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, "'Tell us, when will these things happen?' And what will be the sign when all these things are about to take place? A little bit different. Mark records the questions a little bit different. Mark records them as saying, when will these things happen? And what's the sign when all these things are about to happen? Only a twofold question. But both are prompted by one statement, the destruction of the temple. Notice Luke's account. We continue to read parallel. Luke 21, 5-7. As some were talking about the temple complex, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and gifts dedicated to the Almighty, he said, these things that you see, the days will come when not one stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. Teacher, they asked him, so when will these things be? And what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? Now, here again, Luke, like Mark, records the question as twofold, But both questions are about the same thing, the destruction of the temple. Yeshua says the temple is going to be destroyed, every stone of it. And they ask, when is it going to happen? And what's the sign when it's going to happen? Reading the Gospels horizontally shows us when Matthew, in Matthew 24, records the question as threefold. All three questions pertain to the same event the disciples associate the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age with the destruction of the temple. They did not have in their minds any of these things would happen at different times, hundreds or thousands of years apart with gaps in between, but rather all at the same time. Now it's important that you see that Yeshua is talking about the temple stones that stood then that were there. The the temple that he just came out of and said, there will not be one stone left here upon another. Not talking about any kind of future temple, but the temple that stood when they spoke that day. Put yourself in their shoes. Imagine that you're the personal disciple of Yeshua. And Yeshua says, this house is left desolate. Not one stone left here upon another that will not be thrown down. What would you think? Well, You would think he was talking about that temple. And that's exactly what the disciples thought. And they associated the destruction of that temple with the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age. Remember this as well. Yeshua has already said in Matthew 23, verse 36, all these things will come upon this generation. What does he mean by this generation? We covered this in a previous sermon. He's talking about the generation to whom he is speaking. It is the Greek word genea used the first time in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew 1, right around verse 17, where it talks about, so therefore all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. We have Abraham's generation. We have David's generation. My dad sometimes, when I talk to him, says, back in my day or in my generation. So it's talking about an age or a period of time. And when Yeshua says, all these things will come upon this generation, every time in the Gospels that the phrase... This generation is used. It's the generation to whom Yeshua is speaking. They're the ones he's been scathing all through Matthew 23. Not anybody in the past, not anybody in the future. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. All these things will come upon this generation. Remember, remember this. It's so important. All of this goes together systematically. Remember Matthew 21 through 23. Yeshua had been rebuking the scribes and Pharisees of that generation. They were the tenant farmers that the son of the landowner was sent to. They were the builders that rejected the chief cornerstone. They were the sons of those who murdered the prophets. They were the ones who would fill up the measure of their father's sins. They were the ones that Yeshua said, I send prophets to you and I send wise men to you and you would crucify some and flog others in your synagogues. It was rebellious Israel and specifically the house of Judah That Yeshua was coming down hard on and speaking to and judgment would come upon them. Why? Because when the Son came to visit they rejected and did not recognize the time of their visitation. This is why judgment would come upon them. Yeshua in the flesh as a human being was there that day. They weren't talking about Him like we're talking about Him now. He was there. And He pronounced judgment upon them because they did not receive Him. They would not say Blessed is he that cometh in the name of Yahweh. Meaning, they would not acknowledge that Yahweh is the one that had sent that man from Nazareth. And so it was the temple that stood then that would be destroyed. There wouldn't be left one stone upon another of that temple. The disciples had heard all of this from the mouth of Yeshua. And they just wanted to know more particulars. They wanted to know, when's all this going to take place? What will be the sign of your coming? and the end of the age. Now, let us not forget that Yeshua had already told His twelve disciples that He would come before they finished going through the towns of Israel. He had actually told His personal disciples, I'm going to come back before you finish preaching through the towns of Israel. We read this at length in Matthew 10. I'll put a verse up here momentarily. I'm just going to recap. Yeshua is giving his 12 personal disciples instructions in Matthew 10. Matthew 10 is not about you. It's not about me. It's Yeshua speaking to his 12 disciples. And he's giving them instructions. And he tells them, you're going to preach throughout the towns of Israel. Go and witness to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And so they go to the different towns in the land of Israel. And he says, announce that the kingdom of heaven has come near. And that's a key time text. It's near. When something's near, it's like this Bible, it's at hand. It's near. Doesn't mean it's far off. Doesn't mean it's down in another county. It means it's near to me. And when the Bible uses the word near, as in the kingdom of heaven has come near, it actually means that it is near. And he says, You're preaching the kingdom of heaven has come near. They were to heal the sick, which they did. Raise the dead, which they did. Cleanse those with skin diseases, which they did. And drive out demons, which they did. All of that was fulfilled in Yeshua's personal twelve disciples. They did exactly what he said they would do. Except they did greater works than him because they did it on a larger scale. More of them. Not greater in quality, but greater in quantity. See, He said, the works that I do, you're going to do, and greater works than these. How could they do greater on a larger scale? This is how. There was 12 of them. There was one Messiah. But 12 disciples, they do more quantity works. Okay, But Yeshua warned his disciples that they would be persecuted. They would receive persecution. They would be handed over to councils and be flogged in the synagogues. They were told that brother would betray brother to death and a father his own child and enemies would be people in the same household. Yeshua says in Matthew 10. He told them that they would be hated by everyone on account of his name But the one that endured to the end would be delivered. Not the end of the world as we know it, but the end of their individual life. In other words, if they took the persecution and endured to the end and didn't forsake the Messiah and didn't deny the Messiah, they would be delivered. When it says, He that endures to the end shall be delivered, it's not talking about the end of the world talking about the end of of, of a person's life and so even that principle still applies today those of you in here that endure to the end that do not deny the Messiah until the end of your life will be delivered you will be saved that principle still applies he then says in Matthew 10.23 I think it's very plain it's just whether or not we we want to receive this Matthew 10.23 when they persecute you notice the, the pronoun you personal pronoun the disciples, in one town escape to another, for I assure you, you will not have covered the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Now imagine, you're a disciple and you hear him tell you that. Go preach to the towns of Israel and you won't cover the towns before the Son of Man comes. Now that can't be talking about his first physical coming because that was about 30 years previous in Bethlehem. It can't be talking about the second physical coming because that's still yet future to us. So, coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 10.23 has to mean something other than what we traditionally think that it means. We generally read coming of the Son of Man and we think every time it's mentioned, it must be talking about the second physical coming that's yet future. That can't be so because He tells the disciples, you won't finish covering the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. This coming has to be something different than the second physical coming. Now, I realize that this is probably brand new to most of your your thoughts. It was brand new to me the first time I encountered it years ago, and then again in 2007. I will say I'm definitely not the first person that has come across this. You can go back in the history of the Christian church and see that there's been many... Men, many theologians, many commentators, many Christians that have looked at Matthew 10.23 and known it can't be talking about the consummating coming of Christ. And this may be something you've never heard before, but as I read the two quotes at the beginning of the sermon from John Bray and from Brother Arnold, I want to challenge you to let go of any traditional thinking and think biblically. Now, brothers and sisters, whom I love dearly, I know this is true in my own life, so I think it's true in yours. We often have preconceived doctrines and matters before we go to read what the Bible has to say about those doctrines and matters. In other words, we decide what we believe, maybe because granddaddy taught it to us, maybe because pastor so-and-so taught it to us, maybe because you heard Brother Matthew speak it, None of those are good reasons to believe anything to be true. You base what you believe by the Bible. I posted a little picture one time on Instagram. I may have put it on Facebook. And it's this guy, and he's up late, but he's laying down on the floor, and he's got his Bible out. And the wife is standing up, and she says, Honey, it's time to come to bed. And then his little quote there as he's laying on the floor, he says, I'll be there in a minute. I'm looking for a verse to back up one of my preconceived notions. (laughs) <laughs> but it's so true. We decide, well, bless God, we, this has got to be the truth. So, let me thumb through the Bible and try to find any little thing I can to back up what I already want or what I already think. I know that I've done that before. I have to. I have had to repent of that. By Yahweh's grace and mercy, I'm I'm getting closer and closer to wiping out what I want, think, because we can't base what we believe. On feelings or emotions. Now it's okay to get emotional and feel the presence of Yahweh. There's nothing wrong with that. I get emotional when I sing. Sometimes I get emotional when I preach. That's okay. But let's get emotional and feel the presence of Yahweh and get excited about the truths of the Bible. Not about what we want or what we think. This is one of those verses that people come to with a preconceived idea and they think, well, it can't mean what it says, so it's got to mean something else. Let me see if I can fit a a square peg in a round hole. Well, that doesn't work. There's no such thing as a square circle. That's oxymoronic. Like I told some guy, there's no such thing as non-alcoholic wine. There's no such thing as a married bachelor. Those are oxymorons. Those don't make any sense. People say, well, it's just a paradox, Brother Matthew. No, that's a contradiction. A man can't be married and a bachelor at the same time. Okay? You can't have a square and a circle at the same time, be the same thing. We should go to the Bible to determine what we believe rather than figuring out what we're going to believe and then rushing to the Bible to try to prove what we already think. Can I get an amen? You should, I mean, you should holler from the rooftops on that. Because if you're a follower of the Christ, you only want the Scriptures, what they teach. And that means sometimes you're going to get in the Scriptures and sometimes I'm going to find that they agree with what great-granddaddy said. But sometimes I'm going to find that they don't. And that doesn't mean that great-granddaddy was an evil non-Christian person. It just means that truth had not yet been revealed to him at that time. But for whatever reason, Yahweh is choosing to reveal it to me. And I hope that when I'm dead and gone, and Elijah and Rosalind and Benjamin and my children are still alive, that they continue in their knowledge and don't just camp out on what Dad said. But said, yeah, we enjoyed listening to Dad, and I liked to hear him preach. I wished he was still here. But you know, I think Dad had this part wrong. Because the Scriptures say this. Oh, that's what I want. I don't want my children to say, well, I've got to stick with what Daddy said. No, 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 no. That's not what I want. So this coming of the Son of Man has to be something different than we're accustomed to thinking traditionally. Now, I'm going to tell you what I think it is. I'm not going to go into any detail because that's for a later time. But what I think coming of the Son of Man means here in this text is coming in judgment. Not a physical coming. But coming is the Greek word parousia, and it can just as easily be translated presence. And one of the reasons I think that, once again, this is not detailed. I'll get detailed. Don't worry. I'll be detailed when I get to it. Coming of the Son of Man is equivalent with the many comings of Yahweh in the Old Testament. There are many times that Yahweh would come against His own people because of their rebellion, and He would use a foreign nation like Nebuchadnezzar or Egypt as a javelin in His hand, to come against the Israelites to discipline them for their rebellion. And it was said that Yahweh came down and judged the Israelites. But every time that Yahweh would come down, nobody would see him physically, but you could feel his presence there, how? In judgment. And this coming of the Son of Man that Yeshua is prophesying that he's going to come before they finish going through the towns of Israel is judgment, the destruction of the temple on Jerusalem in the first century A.D. He would come in judgment. There's more to that, but I'm not going to get into it right now. Let's look at another text like this. Matthew 16, 27 through 28. Yeshua speaking. For the Son of Man is going to come with His angels in the glory of His Father, and then He will reward each according to what He has done. Now we read verse 27 and we automatically think, I know I have for many years, that's got to be talking about the second coming of Christ, the second physical coming. He came the first time physically. He promised he'll come back in like manner. And I believe that he's coming back in like manner, just like he came physically. I'm not denying the second physical consummating coming of Christ. But this passage can't be talking about that coming. This is why, verse 28. I assure you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And once again, I think the implications are clear. I just think our traditional mindset, Matthew's, I know Matthew's traditional mindset, doesn't want to allow us to believe what Yeshua says. Yeshua had an audience in front of him that day. He was talking to those people. And he said, I assure you, some of you standing here will not taste death. That means you won't die until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. See, S-E-E in the Bible, doesn't always mean physically see, but it can mean comprehend and understand. Just like if I explain something to Brother Frankie and I say, do you see what I'm saying? And he says, yeah, I see what you're saying. We use that today. We understand. I'll get more into that as we progress through Matthew chapter 24. This passage right here implies that many of them there that day would die but some of them wouldn't. Remember, he said, some of you standing here will not taste death until you see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. That implies many of them standing there that day would die. Therefore, this coming of the Son of Man in Matthew 16, 27 through 28 must be far away enough from them that many of them would already be dead, yet close enough to them that some of them could still be alive. Some of them would not taste of death until they see or understand death that the Son of Man has come in his in his kingdom. Once again, this passage like Matthew ten twenty three cannot fit the traditional understanding of a coming that is still future to us living now. No, this coming of the Son of Man spoken about by Yeshua himself must have happened before all of the people standing there that day died. Just like Yeshua said. You said, Brother Matthew, you believe that the Son of Man came before all of those people died? Yes. Why do I believe that? Because Yeshua said it. And whether or not I can explain it, I believe that I can, but whether or not I can explain it doesn't discredit what Yeshua said. If He said it, I believe it. And He told those men there, the Son of Man is going to come in His kingdom before some of you standing here taste death or die. Now, the reason I bring these two texts up in Matthew is because the disciples had heard Yeshua talk like this. They had heard Him speak of this coming. And that's why they included in their question in Matthew 24 verse 3, when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming? And of the end of the age. They associated His coming with the destruction of the temple that He had just predicted in Matthew 23 and 24. And what about this end of the age question Matthew 24 verse 3? And by the way, end of the age... The Greek word there is aeon, best translated as age. Some Bibles, the KJV, get this wrong. They say end of the world. The Greek word is not cosmos. Cosmos would be the common Greek word that would be used for the end of the world as we know it, the physical world. But that's not what Yeshua said. He used the word age, aeon there. The Gospel author of Matthew did So they asked, what's the sign of the end of the age? They were not asking about when the end of the present world was going to be. That's still future to us in 2016. They were asking about the end of the age as it related to the city of Jerusalem and that temple. Because why? Why were they asking about the end of that age? Because Yeshua had just said, judgment's coming upon the temple and upon the city. He wept over it. That, catch this, very important, that would be the end of the Old Covenant and the beginning of the New Covenant. You know the Bible talks about the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right? Made with the same people, same laws, but there are some differences in the Old and the New Covenant. Obviously. As we see here today, we don't do everything today like was done in the Old Covenant. That's obvious. We don't. So that would be the end. Now, Meditate on this. You might need to meditate and take this home a little bit. That would be the end of Old Covenant Israel. But it would be the beginning of New Covenant Christian Israel. Being a physical Israelite alone does not make you a member of the New Covenant. You must be a physical Israelite that believes in Christ to be a member of the New Covenant. Remember John one twelve through thirteen, for as many as received them to, to as many as received him, excuse me, to them he gave the power to be called the sons of, of the Almighty, even to them that believe on his name. You cannot reject the cornerstone and be a member of the new covenant. You have to accept the cornerstone, and then you can be of the house of Israel or the house of Judah and a member of the new covenant. So if we let the Bible speak here, it's not difficult. Coming of the Son of Man, into the age, it's only the traditional mindset and traditional understanding that make it difficult for us to believe what the Bible said. However, if we let go of all of that and believe the Bible, we read in the New Testament that the authors of the New Testament considered the day that they lived in to be the end of the, end of the age and also to be the last days. Hebrews 9, 24-26. For the Messiah did not enter a sanctuary made with hands, only a model of the true one, but into heaven itself, that he might now appear in the presence of the Almighty for us. What is the author of Hebrews talking about here? He's saying that the Messiah, the Messiah, he's called a high priest here in the book of Hebrews, but the author is saying he didn't enter the earthly tabernacle, the temple. That's not where he applied his blood. And the author says that one on the earth is just a model of the true one that's where? In heaven. So He didn't enter into the earthly but He entered into the heavenly to do what? To appear in the presence of the Almighty. That's Yahweh the Father for us. By His blood. Applied to that true, that archetype temple that the one on the earth was patterned after. The one in heaven was first. It's always been up there with Yahweh. This one on earth is just a a pattern after the the archetype. And Yeshua didn't enter the one on earth. He was not a priest according to Levi, but he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Psalm 110. From the tribe of Judah. Verse 25. He did not do this to offer himself many times as the high priest enters the sanctuary yearly with the blood of another... You know what that's talking about? Read all of chapter 9 and chapter 10. That's talking about Yom Kippur. It's talking about the Day of Atonement. Every year with the blood of another, meaning the blood of goats and bulls, the high priest, the son of Aaron, would present that blood to cleanse the uh, the flesh of the Israelites, forgive them of their sins, and they would do it every year. In contrast to that, Yeshua did not have to offer himself every year, many times. But only one time. Only one time. That's the point. And not the blood of another, but the blood of himself. Verse 26, Otherwise he would have had to suffer many times since the foundation of the world. Now we know he's the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, but not literally. It's metaphorical. The plan of Yahweh was already set in stone. That's how he was slain from the foundation of the world. It does not mean he was hanging up on the cross beside the Father before the world was created. But in the plan of Yahweh, it was already set in stone that he He would come, He would live perfectly, He would die sacrificially and be raised from the dead on the third day. And that's the gospel message by which we are saved if we believe and have faith in that. So Yeshua didn't suffer, as 26 says, many times, but now He has appeared one time, verse 26, at the end of the ages for the removal of sin by the sacrifice of Himself. The author of Hebrews calls the time of Yeshua's first coming when he offered himself up and then presented himself to the Father, he calls that time the end of the ages. I don't have this in my notes. If you if you have your Bible, look at 1 Corinthians real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Just take just just a second here. 1 Corinthians 10, and I'll just read verses 10 through 11. Apostle Paul warning the Corinthian assembly, the New Covenant assembly. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, 10 through 11, Nor should we complain as some of them did, some of them who? In the Old, old Covenant. Some of them did and were killed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them back then, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, as examples, and they were written as a warning to us on whom the ends of the ages have come. Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth and says the things that were written back then in the Hebrew Scriptures are warnings and they were written as examples to us, Corinthian church, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now I know that's different from what prophecy experts quote-unquote tell us today, and they say, well, we, the end of the ages is still future time, but we want to determine phrases biblically. And biblically the end of the ages, 1 Corinthians ten, eleven, Hebrews 9, 24 through 26, was talking about the time period there when the Old Covenant was transferred over to the New Covenant. And it took approximately 40 more years after Yeshua died on the cross and ascended up to the Father until they got to the year 70 A.D., when the judgment came down upon Jerusalem and Judah and there was one million, over one million Israelites killed by the Roman armies in Jerusalem at that time. Why? Because they did not accept Yeshua. But those in Christian Israel that did accept Yeshua did exactly what he told them to do and they fled to the mountains outside of Judea. And that is all that they had to do to escape the Great Tribulation. And that's because it was a local event there in Judea, in Jerusalem. Not one Christian Israelite died because they did exactly what Yeshua told them to do. But those that stayed behind, they suffered judgment. They were taken away and the other ones were left. And there's more to that, but why don't we get to it right now? And notice what the author of Hebrews, we we went to Hebrews 9, the author of Hebrews states about the last days in Hebrews 1, 1 through 2a. He says, Long ago the Almighty spoke to the fathers by the prophets at different times and in different ways. Now who's speaking here? The Almighty. Yahweh. How is He speaking? By the prophets. Yahweh would speak long ago to the fathers by the prophets but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son. That's the time of the ministry of the Son. That means when Yeshua was on the earth and He was speaking, Yahweh was speaking, He used to speak long ago by the prophets, but in these last days, the time of the Son, He speaks now to us that way. The author of Hebrews calls the time then these last days. Now I grew up all my life in church and I heard We're in the last days and I heard some people say we're in the last of the last days which is not a biblical term. Last of the last days is not a Bible term. So if you hear a prophecy expert say now we're in the last of the last days question and ask them where is that in the Bible? Last of the last days. Because you will not find it. Get a concordance out. Don't take Brother Matthew's word. Get a concordance out you won't find it. You will find the phrase these last days or last days but every time you find it you'll find it's relating to to the time period in the first century, the moving out of the Old Covenant, moving into the New, based upon the blood of Christ. The destruction of Jerusalem, that city and that temple, and the acceptance by Christian Israel of Yeshua, who is greater than the temple, This is just a sampling of texts like this. I would refer you here and anybody else that is listening to my sermon titled Are We Living in the Last Days? from October twenty first, 2015 and a lot more information can be gleaned from that sermon. Now as I close today I want to say that all of this makes the disciples' threefold question in Matthew 24 verse 3 make sense. Yeshua had just prophetically pronounced destruction upon the temple and the disciples asked... When will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming? And like I mentioned before, and don't take my word for it. We'll get more into it in detail, but you study it. I believe what, what will be the sign of your coming is speaking of the, his coming in judgment there in the first century upon the city of Jerusalem and the end of the age. In other words, the end of, of this city as we know it. Remember last week's message? Zion will be plowed up like a field. Micah chapter 3 verse 12 because of the leaders of Israel and their transgressions. See the disciples associated the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. They were asking about one event. And Yeshua beginning in Matthew 24 verse 4 answers them. And I know people would love for Yeshua to be answering us. And we can glean from the chapter, no doubt. But Yeshua was speaking directly to them. To them. Think about it. What if you were back there and you asked Yeshua a question and he started responding? Would you think he was talking to somebody 2,000 years in the future? No, you would pay attention. Perk up your ears because what he's saying is important. And in the next lesson, you always will next week, I feel the need to peel off one more layer of Matthew 24, 1 through 3. And I want to examine how that Yeshua here in in this text and in other texts in the Gospel of John is trying to get the people of Israel not to focus on Jerusalem or the temple. It's going to be destroyed. But to focus on He who is greater than the temple. And this is going to get us into when he tells the leaders, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it again. And they argue amongst themselves and they say, it took 46 years to build this junker right here. That's my southern slang. And he's going to build it in three days? They were thinking in the natural, in the physical. Let us have eyes of, of, of the Spirit. To recognize that when Yeshua said destroy this temple, he was talking about his body. And as powerful as Yahweh once dwelt in the physical temple in Jerusalem, brothers and sisters, I get cold chill bumps when I say this. It doesn't compare to the fullness of Yahweh that dwelt in bodily in his only begotten Son. Because he was the temple, the stone that the builders rejected. Not a physical stone with mortar, but the chief cornerstone of the assembly. And you got Yahweh sends him and you gotta take him as a stone and you gotta put him there in the building where he belongs, right there at the corner. And the apostles and prophets, the foundation and then where the churches were built on top of that. Yeshua would resurrect from death. He would die. They would kill him. But he would raise from the dead. And then he would reign in heaven at the Father's right hand. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but the Apostle Paul said he must reign until Yahweh puts all enemies under his feet. And that's talking about, still talking about now. He's been reigning ever since he went to the Father's right hand. He's reigning, ruling and reigning among the sons of men from the heavenly throne that the Father gave him. It's so exciting. That will give you a lot to chew on until next week. Praise Yahweh. Let's stand and have a word of prayer as we begin. Heavenly Father, I love you. I lift my hands to you today. And I praise you for your word. Oh, I love to study your word. And I love when it starts coming together like pieces in a puzzle. Yahweh, Father, keep us humble. Keep us teachable. Father, lead us and guide us as we study the scriptures. I pray, Father, that we would receive your word, not traditions of men, but your word. Help me, Father Yahweh, if I'm missing anything, not seeing anything, please help me. But in your time, Yahweh, not in mine, in your time, you know what I can handle, and you know what I can't. And... that just makes me love you so more because you don't ever put it all on us at one time. You're merciful. You give us a little bit here, a little bit there because you're a loving Father and you love us. Father, forgive me of my sins. Help me to forgive those that sin against me. Lead me not into temptation. Deliver me from evil. Yours is the power, the kingdom, and the glory. I love you, Father Yahweh. It's through your Son I pray. Amen.